I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome to episode 35 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Today, we're going to spend a lot of time in the episode answering mail from you guys. We get a pretty fair amount of it now at Three on the Isle. We like the pipeline flowing. Just about all of it comes from people who love the theater about as much as we do. That seems impossible, in my opinion. Well, Nobody there are weeks when we I question that. Yeah, yeah well, there I, are nights when you question that. Oh, my that. God, yes. Uh, and actually, your questions are some of the best questions we get in our professional capacity. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the plan for this episode is to open the mailbag and answer as many as we can get to. And then we're going to wrap up the show uh, in our usual fashion, which means that we're going to talk about things we, uh, we've seen recently and uh, what kind of impressions they left on us for the <laughs> for good or bad. First, though, uh, we have a confession to make. Uh, a couple of you wrote to us uh, to ask if there was something wrong with the audio on our last episode, our interview with David Cromer. One person thought we sounded like we were recording from the bottom of a deep well. Almost something true. Something like that. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was a little <laughs> off. There were some technical problems, and we know what happened. And since we do know what happened, and it's kind of funny, we thought we might tell you what it was that happened, because it has to do with the fact that I wasn't on that episode. I was expecting to be on that episode. Um, those of you who follow me in the uh, social media know that my wife, the amazing Mrs. T, has been weathering some health difficulties. And on the day that we were taping, she was at the University of Connecticut Health Center, and I was planning to Skype in from there, where I was looking after her, to take part in the broadcast. So I needed a room to work in, and the nurses put me at the end of the hall in an empty hospital room. <laughs> A really, a really comforting place to uh, participate in a theatrical discussion. So we did the sound check. Uh, we're all ready to go. I can see everybody, Cromer sitting in the chair, the red lights on. And suddenly somebody is tapping on my shoulder. And it was a nurse who said, we need you right away down at the other end of the hall. So I, go, I, so I go. <laughs> yeah, very dramatic. Other, yeah. But in fact, what it is was they had to do a, a, I won't go into the gory details, but they had to do a procedure on Mrs. T, uh, whose tolerance for this sort of thing has sort of been diminished by excessive exposure to doctors. Mm. And she said, could you please get Terry to come in and hold my hand? Oh, so, well, God. no, so I, I scrubbed in. Wow. I actually scrubbed in because there was a... a that was involved, put on one of those bonnet things and, and, and uh, a mask, and uh, I, hold, I held her hand through this whole procedure, which was rather painful. Mm. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of moments when she yelled. And then at the end of one of these yells, I looked at her and said, you think you've got it bad. Imagine what it would be like if I was the one submitting to this. And hey. she said, didn't drop a stitch. She just said to me, you wouldn't have gotten through it to save your life. So we both start laughing up at the other end of the table, and the doctors look at us like we've lost our minds. I, you have I, to keep I, your sense of humor. I had, I had cramps in my legs a couple of nights ago, and I was screaming. I was yeah. such a wuss. Yeah, it was really pathetic. She's, but how is she now? She is coming along. She Good. is. Uh, she's in Connecticut. Uh, 
uh, full of needles, uh, being filled with antibiotics, but she is making progress and uh, sends her best to all of you. And I hated to miss the episode, but when the nurse taps on your shoulder, uh, it doesn't matter whether the red light's on or not. Well, we send our best to Mrs. T as always. Thank and, you very much. And now I'm coming in with the worst segue ever. <laughs> <laughs> as is my yeah. want. <laughs> So before we get to the mailbag, we, we, we wanted to talk about uh, something that's come up uh, because a couple of times on the show and, and, and in real life, uh, I've talked about shows that are not good, but kind of great. And I think I use that expression in reference to the share show and head over heels. And actually Ooh. now I think, I <laughs> know, right? No, but now actually I think I'm revising this by saying actually they're kind of good and they're kind of great too. Uh, and by by that I mean they're not technically they have problems they have issues mm-hmm. and yet I enjoy them so much more than shows that are on paper a lot better a lot more accomplished. Well, the ones um, the, the I will say actually that the the, play, the the pieces that we're describing as guilty pleasures did not find audiences. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the share I, show's closing this summer. I know. Uh, I think another one, maybe Be More Chill, would probably be described by some people as a guilty You're pleasure. You are dancing on their graves. I'm not dancing. I'm just <laughs> suggesting that this idea that they're guilty pleasures well, uh, no, weren't that guilty for many people felt innocent here. Uh, no, no, this, no, but I mean, this. like, I... And I, Head Over Heels went bye-bye, you know, almost overnight number itself. one, I'm just speaking for myself here. Clearly. And number, two, <laughs> and number two, I actually uh, don't believe in the uh, very idea of guilty pleasures mm-hmm. because it feels like a very puritanical take to take on uh, on something. Right. I'm uh, glad you said And in said fact, that. there's no translation of guilty pleasure in French. Is there not? Is there? There's Le not. Just de- like... <laughs> Just like oh no, plaisir coupable. No, there is one. My ah. mistake. There's no translation I for had to dating. Help her with that. There's no translation for dating. That's another N- one. There's that just really... none in Corsican. No, in Cor- well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Corsican man, that's something else. We 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 have cat foxes well, though. I just learned. Well, Terry has a very strong opinion <laughs> yes. about this I that he's trying it. to get off his chest for weeks. Well, years, actually. Uh, I I wrote about the whole idea of guilty pleasures on my blog about last night, a number of years ago. And instead of just paraphrasing it, I'll just read what I wrote because it says exactly what I think. I wrote back then, the phrase guilty pleasure is inherently problematic because it implies that we ought to be hypocrites when it comes to our artistic responses. Kingsley Amos said the last word about this deeply wrong-headed attitude when he wrote, All amateurs must be Philistines part of the time. (laughs) Must be. A greater sin is to be coerced into showing respect when little or none is felt. Now, the inverse, I think, is also true. I really like, for example, ABBA's SOS, which I think is just a perfectly crafted pop single. So why should I feel guilty about it? Generally speaking, though, I don't fall victim to either error, partly because I don't give a damn about received opinion, and partly because it's unusual for me to like fundamentally dishonest art. It occurs to me then that this might point in the direction of a working definition of bona fide guilty pleasures and our responses to them. Guilty pleasures let us off too easy by pandering to our innate longing for unearned simplicity. They are the Krispy Kreme donuts of art. <laughs> now, Elizabeth, how does that tie in with your well, not good but kind of great category of popular musicals? Uh, or does it? I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure because uh, I 
basically my my response is you like something or you don't and why should you feel bad about liking something yeah. now what's important though is realizing when something you enjoy may not be the greatest thing you can still enjoy it but i think it's good to be aware that there's degrees in accomplishments i don't think you can enjoy sweeney todd and head over heels the same way it's okay to enjoy both but you don't go at them in the same way like they kind of exercise different parts of your brain mm. you know i mean it's they're just different but well, although i probably would have more fun at head over heels but <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah but when, when terry is talking about crispy cream donuts of our uh, the uh, you know when he's using that that comfort food analogy i go and meet i go to nostalgia mm. and i think that there is there are these reflexive uh things that happen to all of us that are deeply personal that almost defy generalization by anybody else in any other context. And those things really are almost a, a, a substitute for saying guilty pleasure. I think they're basically the things that really you can't defend critically as pieces of craftsmanship or art. They just don't fit in any category that we're used to using to define ha our taste. And for that reason, they fall outside those limits. And I don't know, the good question that Terry raises is why we are so, we are so defensive about what we love. Yeah. We all find it easier. I don't think this is just reserved for critics. I think we all find it easier to dislike things than like things in some you, fundamental you way. Know, the word that is lighting up on my screen here is camp. Mm. And I wonder if that, if the idea of camp ties in with this idea of guilty pleasures. If for some people under some circumstances, camp is the concept of camp is a way of legitimizing guilty pleasure. Mm -hmm. mm. I don't I mean, think I'll, so for, for, for gay men, for instance, I don't think it has anything to do with guilty pleasure camp. I mean, uh, because that is again, putting a kind of negative spin on something that is very important to a certain identity or maybe it was at some point well, in time it's something emotional I, you know i'm trying to think can you call ann bogart or robert wilson or evo von hova a guilty pleasure i'm not <laughs> sure no do you know, but okay. what i'm saying right. is you i should. do uh -oh. well no but you know i mean i think there's an emotional component that we we we, we don't think of this as having a an intellectual dimension right a guilty pleasure almost by nature is something that's gut related and that's also part of the reason I think we call it guilty is because it exposes more rawly who we are. You know, that whole sentimentality <laughs> thing is something that many people aren't comfortable with. It's so many degrees, too. Like, if you talk to, like, a, a Wagner fan, they will say, like, oh, Puccini is my guilty pleasure. Like, yeah, I, guess I mean, like, yeah. it, it's Excuse really, me, like... but what horse shit? No. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Uh, like, my, my brother actually is a huge Wagner head. And I, I know for a long time he was thinking of Bel Canto as, as a guilty pleasure. He's mm. changed his tune, but in his head, that's where he came from for, for a long time. And I think so it's really a matter of degrees there. And it's the same in, in rock, you but, know, where. But, but isn't it also a way of almost, if you say something's a guilty pleasure, it's a way of inoculating yourself against anybody else who, who might find a exactly. way to criticize you yeah, for it. Right. Yes. Snobbishness is built it's, into this. It's protection. There's an old, there's a story. This is not an apocryphal story. Uh, <laughs> P.G. Woodhouse was given a doctorate by uh, Oxford back in the 30s. 
Alex Barish's uh, alma mater. Our, our producer's alma mater. <laughs> and back in the 30s, I mean, nowadays, people generally accept that Woodhouse is, in his way, a kind of classic. That was not an accepted notion back mm. then. And uh, some, somebody asked uh, one of the people involved with the, with the degree, you know, what's this all about? And he said, well, you know, they like reading him. But they want an excuse to be able to, mm. so they gave him a doctorate. Mm. Mm. And I, 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 I that's pref- lovely. Yes, and I must say, I prefer just reading him and saying he's great and mm-hmm. the hell with the doctorate, right? Or give him the doctorate and don't feel guilty about right. it. Right. I just, I, I don't do guilty pleasure. Got I, it. I, I don't. But you know, it's the same way with Stephen King. For decades, Stephen King was not reviewed by legit publications. Mm. Uh, he was kind of really, right. and you know, it was good enough that he was selling like gazillion books. Right. But now he's, he writes for prestige publications, mm-hmm. you know, op-eds and essays and, and whatnot. Um, well, that's interesting. I, There's, well, you said it a moment ago, Elizabeth. There's, it, it's different the way that we like Stephen Sondheim or somebody like Stephen Sondheim and the way that we like if we like Head Over Heels. And good and bad can be put into that factoring or not. But the important thing is just to remember that they are they are different. And our experience of them is different. And if you want to say that one is better than the other, fine. Different is the operative word for mm-hmm. me. I just think it's good for people to like what they like, but just like too. a lot of things. Yes. And that's okay. You know, just like a lot of things. I do find it interesting, though, that you point out that culturally speaking, you know, in France, they don't even sort of, it's not it, a term that even has any real connection to It doesn't how come up respond. as much as here. That's fascinating. That's really um, interesting. I think we're a lot more concerned with whether it's Insecure? okay. Yes, it's okay to like things over here. I mean, America still has rather shallow-rooted mm. culture. That's true. I mean, if you, even if you go to the UK, you know, the sort of the low cult, the lowbrow comedy has a much more uh, uh, intellectual following than it oh, does like here. like Carry On? No, I don't think so. You know? <laughs> I do. You know, we're not... We have trouble I think that, doing you know, farce pantomime and, and, and music hall are really embedded in the culture in a that's way. That's true. No, that's true. I, I was pulling your leg. It took a long time for us to accept that the American musical is a major contribution true. to American mm-hmm. art. Absolutely. Now and everybody it, does accept it, and that's a good thing. Yes. There's no downside to that. That's very true. My opinion. But you know what is a pure pleasure? The mailbag. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. The mailbag. This is, this is, we have no goosebumps guilt in this, goosebumps. in transitioning to this aspect of our show. Hashtag spicy nuts. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh my God. We're having, now I we have our to. own sort of references. These I are, had it's to. like a classic this, this, three you on know the what? aisle references. This is an Easter egg for our faithful listeners. Just, yeah. I'm just putting Spicy it out there. Spicy nuts are a guilty pleasure. <laughs> you that's can listen, sure. listen that's to right. previous episodes to understand. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to let Alex Barish, OBE. In his mellifluous accent. Which are you up for the place that is about Alex. to give us Boris Johnson? I can't Johnson. remember. He's, no, he's commander of the British. I can't remember which the queen is thinking what is it, of him OBE? for. I think both. It may happen all at once. <laughs> Sir Alex, we're going to have to, before it's Lord Barish, that's okay. Lord Barish, read, that is gonna, a ring okay, to it. Okay, we're going to read uh, your letters aloud. He's going to do <laughs> Sorry, it. Lord Barish is something out of Narnia. It's uh, <laughs> so well, good. He has a KBO. A KBO. What's a KBO? Well, that, that was, uh, Winston Churchill said that was the universal British slogan. Keep buggering on. <laughs> there you go. KBO, okay. There you go. 
Okay. So, so first up, uh, so he's going to read the letters and we're going to respond to them. First up is one from Debbie Schrager about an important aspect of how we, the critics, do what we do. Alex, take it from there. I'm wondering if you would talk a bit about the difference between reviewing new work and revivals and the related issue of reviewing revivals of work that you personally have not seen before. The new Broadway revival of Arthur Miller's All My Sons, for example, filled a gap in my theatre experience. I'd never seen a production of or read the play. I found it absolutely riveting, and I didn't think about many negative points that some reviewers raised, because I found the work itself, seen by me for the very first time, to be so engaging. Do you ever consider viewers like me who are coming fresh to a show when you review revivals? That's a great question. Yeah. That's really good. Um, what do you think, Terry? You're so, you, yeah, I'll tell you a story about this. Neville Cardis, he was one of the great British music critics. And during World War II, because the classical music scene dried up over there, he went over to Australia which in the 40s didn't have as developed a, a classical music scene as it, as it does now. And so suddenly he found himself reviewing, for the first time in years, pieces like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And he was asking himself, well, oh my God, you know, I've heard this too many times, what do I have to say about it? And it suddenly hit him. There is always not just a few people, but a lot of people in the audience mm. who have never heard it. And your job is to speak to them. Mm. And uh, I, I always think about that. I mean, aside from the fact that no matter how long you've been in this business, sooner or later, you're going to you're going to run into shows of some importance that you yourself haven't seen. I seek them out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know how that changes what I write. But I do know that it's something that I'm very much aware of, that my readers, very likely a not insignificant percentage of them who went to see All My Sons had never seen All My Sons. So you don't want to write operating on the assumption that they've seen five or six revivals of it and the film and they know all about it, you know. You want to try to come fresh to it in the same way that they are coming fresh to it. But at the same time, it's, I think it's disingenuous not to take account and stock of the various productions you've seen before and compare yes. to what you're seeing now. Because, you know, there is a temporal perspective to reviewing a revival that doesn't exist for a new piece, which is that it's being brought back from another time. And part of the issue is how relevant, you can't get away from the word, how it, how it communicates with right now. Why is it being brought back? And that's a question that not necessarily interests uh, a viewer who's or a spectator or an audience theater goer who's only seeing it for the first time and experiencing it as if it were right. a we, new work. We write for a lot of different kinds of people every time we write. But I think your point is right. I mean, I do absolutely think that you have to be thinking about your reader who, who, who you know, most people do not have our breadth of experience with, with works like these. But on, by the same token, I don't think it serves much purpose to to either, you know, toggle towards people who have not seen it before and those who've seen it 42 times. I think you have to just really bear the responsibility of your own archive. Yeah, I, I think of it almost as a new show every time. I really do. I, I don't I even think, think that's a unless I don't I don't even think about. Like I've seen a gazillion King Lears as we all have at, mm -hmm. around this table. For me, it's always a new one. Am I having fun? I mean, or fun or not in the case of King Lear. Uh, 
or am I not? You know, is it working on its own? I really look at it like on its own. I can't, but I, except, except that sometimes, well, with King Lear, I, I try to bring it up if I'm writing about it, like, well, it comes short in this way and that earlier production, but I try to explain why that earlier production had done it better to put it in context. So the people know what I'm talking about. You can't just say, unlike so-and-so in 1987, you know what I mean? Like, what, who would know that? Mm. It's, it's. I, I just, I mean, I will say, you know, I, the one thing about the question that, that sort of bothers me is the idea that, that my job is to bring uh, each reader's experience to them, to tailor it to them. As if they don't have to come along and try to figure out what it is about my perspective that helps them. So the question of whether I think about somebody who's never seen a show before is not that useful a, a, to me, a definition of how I review revivals. I think I think there are many shows I have never seen before. There are Shakespeare plays I haven't seen before. And that's what I want to ask mm -hmm. everybody here. Let's go back to Debbie's question. Uh, the related issue of reviewing revivals of work that you personally have not seen before. Colleagues, what's the last time you reviewed a show of importance that you had never seen before? Hmm. You mean like, a, like an older show? A revival or, or, or something? A revival. A revival. Oh my God, that's a really hard question. Yeah, I, I, I just grabbed from my computer your, and looked I, it up. Oh, oh you did? Right. It was Kenny Lonergan's The Waverly Gallery. I had never seen it before the Broadway revival mm -hmm. because it had been many years since it was. I thought you meant though something that oh. you know is so in the in the in the in the canon. Well, of sure, modern or 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 uh, older plays. Well, I've been doing this for fifteen years, and the first five years I was doing it. Probably every two out of every three Shakespeare plays I reviewed, I hadn't seen before. Right. I, 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 re I reviewed the first Cymbeline I ever saw, for example. I reviewed the first um, Winter's Tale I'd ever seen. Um, and that was a great experience. I mean, everybody's got to see a show for the first time. I saw the Aristia for the first time. Uh, earlier this summer, which I had never seen, my my Greek the I mean, I'd seen a lot of plays, but I'd never seen the Oristia, and that was, I guess I'm, you know, it's a good question. The question really is, are you supposed to sound like you've seen these things before? You know, do people expect you to have seen all this huh. work before? If there's a point That's to a good it, one. I'll admit it. I mean, especially if it's a show that, that is not getting revived enough. Hmm. Do you think it's? Do you think part of our job is to say I've never seen this before? I, if, if there's a point to saying so, I, yeah, why not? I don't, I don't know. Anything, well, that's why I don't What's know what the, this question is. Anything yeah. a critic does that that makes him look dumb in public is probably good for his soul anyway. No. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I, I will also say I rarely say that. I mean, I, that I've seen this show four times already. You know, I mean, there are some like Hamlet and obviously or My Fair Lady that you you know that most people have seen before, but I'm not so sure it's even useful. Uh, I don't know which review she was referring to in her question, right. but I don't think well, it's really something I'm so conscious of, unless I was padding a review, <laughs> <laughs> really trying to reach for something to say. Should, should we move on to the next one? Well, that we a, have a, that a, a double barrel question. question from a listener in England, Tom we Brassington. We have listeners oh. in England. Oh, not only that, but we have the right person speaking it. Yes. I've dabbled in writing some song cycles and musical theatre songs. Quite often I've acted in partnership as the lyricist. So my question for the three of you is twofold. One, what do you think makes for great musical lyrics? And two, what do you look for as a critic in a performer's delivery of lyrics? Oh my god. Oh. 
That's a great question too. I can't even. Well, Sondheim has, you know, was what I was raised on. It's, it was the, he was the first uh, composer lyricist who really made me understand what an art lyric lyrics were. And, you know, from that, I worked back to other people who like Cole Porter and, and Oscar Hammerstein, who were great and lesser and low. I mean, is it Frank Lesser has great. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a whole, uh, uh, span of them. I, I mean, I think it's, it's like any literary form in a sense. It's what feels novel and witty and, and concise and care and, and, and reveals character, uh, and advances the plot, all those things that you want any terrific writing to do and not sound like doggerel or things that you've heard a hundred times, not lazy rhymes or off rhymes that really grate on your ear. I mean, there's a whole panoply of, yeah. of things that go into great lyrics. I'll, I'll give you an operational test here. Uh, A.E. Hausman said that when he was shaving in the morning, if he thought of a, a line of poetry and it was good, he could feel the hair stand up under his blade. For me, if I'm listening to a song that is new to me and the lyric lands right, I grab the pencil. I want to make sure mm. that I, I can get back to that because it's leaping out of the page at me. Analysis comes next. The immediate experience comes first. And if somebody, in that respect, the lyric is just like a well-turned line of dialogue. If somebody says something in so striking a way that I, my hand grabs for the pencil, then I know that I've just heard something that's going to stay with me and I'll figure it out later. Well, for me, the, the lyrics that I like, I tend to not notice on the first go-round. I notice them the second go-round. The ones I notice right away are the ones that are really bad. Mm. Uh, if they're really good in context, I don't. there's a kind of evidence to them. And it's only after that you realize how well-crafted they are. Whereas the bad ones... I, there are shows where it, it's it's like nails on a blackboard well, to hear. Well, there's a you know in a way, and this is a gross generalization, but the the pop song, the in, the intrusion of pop music into uh, into musical theater, as opposed to the other way around, where musical theater became pop uh, songs. I think has has really I, degenerated. I, I totally don't agree the with quality that. Of I totally don't agree lyric, with that. Broadway I totally lyrics. don't agree with that. I think what well, you has let me finish my point. <laughs> but you're so wrong. So I was going to stop you before you <laughs> dig even deeper. <laughs> you know, you know, pop music. I, I in, in general, the lyrics of uh, uh, we're not we're always a devalued part. Beside the Beatles and some other great people like Billy Joel, we're oh, not. Are you serious? Was I that a joke? That, did you actually use Billy Joel as an example of a good lyricist? You're damn Are right. you serious? Yes, kids. Really I'm am. done with this. I'm Let, done. I'm leaving the studio. from an Italian this restaurant. Have you ever listened to him? Oh, oh my God. I have. To... He's so bad. Allow oh me to God, put this. Oh my God. She slapped me. No, but seriously. I, oh my God. I cannot tell if you're joking or not. Allow I'm not joking. Put, oh my God. Allow me to put this on a All higher right, level of discourse. This may be the first walkout we've had <laughs> on Three on the Isle. I'm Peter, I'm walking out the aisle. I'll beat the you aisle. through the door. <laughs> Peter, are you is is part of what you're saying? Are you bothered by like say half rhymes? Yes, rhymes. Uh, scansion is really important to me. Yeah. Those things absolutely, and that's what if you become a, a Sondheim purist, if that's how you're sort of um, 
that's where you cultivated your, ins your, your love of, of lyrics. Yes, I don't like near rhymes very much. I hear them very distinctly. I don't like, uh, I don't like sort of free, uh, freely written, uh, 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 freehand kind of uh, lyric writing where there's you know, no beginning, middle, and end, except for the song Frank Mills in Hair, which I think really works because it's a different kind of um, um, meter. But generally, I like, yes, I'm a form, I have a, a formalist's sort okay. of view of it. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I I can like the other kind of songwriting and do very much, but in in a theatrical context, a show, to take an example of a show whose lyrics I really don't like, Waitress, those seem, they, they feel to me to have just been kind of thrown down on the paper. And yep. I, I want something, I, I don't have to have every rhyme land perfectly. Uh, and I don't want rhymes as clever as, please forgive us, Stephen Sondheim, uh, Cigar Butt and Bizarre Butt. Oh, I love it. Uh, but on, at That's the same like, time. like, oh my God. At the same time, I, good, I need a, I need a what good rhyme is valuable <laughs> is that good rhyme makes lyrics more memorable. They stick better. If they rhyme exactly, if the scansion is good, that's part of that's part of what makes them glow on the page and in the voice. Uh, which remember, this well, this person also asked us two questions. And the second one, well, well, actually, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, because okay. I, I want to address the whole thing she about pop rock influence. Okay, yeah, a bad for me, what has caused the, what has caused the creation of a thousand monsters is terrible Sondheim imitators who do these really awful, super narrative songs where people are basically just doing this like sing talk, this completely banal, really narrative heavy sing talk in slivish imitation of Sondheim. But of course they don't have his talent. Mm. I think he, ha and he, so he, he caused he's a lot of created problems for a lot yes, of people. He's a thousand monsters of, well, of, of, of like, every time I hear Grey Gardens, every time I hear War Paint, I want to scream. At oh, the I think there's some beautiful, <gasps> a, another winter in a summer town. The, That's a beautiful lyric. Oh, now, guys, the don't strangle lyrics, each other again, please. The lyrics. The, <laughs> I don't want to do lyrics, one in the aisle. The, it is, it's so jejune. Sorry, okay. I'm going to be very But that to me is worse. And Randy Newman, like there's been great people. I think Tim Minchin is a guy who comes from pop and rock. He's one of the best songwriters in theater right now. I think there are right exceptions. Now. I agree. Oh, I like Tim Minchin's, Minchin's work very uh, much. And I have but, always wished that Donald Fagan would try writing for the but, stage. But, oh, my God, but yes. give me a break. Any Andrew Lloyd Webber show by all those lyrics. Tim Rice's lyrics, forgive me. Loving. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think this 35 may be it for me. 35 I, shows. That's it. 35 shows, you're, you're done. I, this is discovering things that okay, we, questions. Should, we should know about each other. All right, question it's, number two okay. from, Tom, <laughs> from, from Tom Brassington, yeah. which oh, yeah, we okay. have we, not yeah, touched yeah, 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 on, yeah. and it's right. a good question, yeah. too. What do you look for as a critic in a former's, performer's delivery of lyrics? Hmm. And for me, the answer is immediate. I want to hear them. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I, I, I want every word to land I don't. I, I go to the opera enough to know what it's like when none of the words land, and when I'm in the musical theater, I want those words to pop off the stage and go all the way to the back wall of the theater. But and that's they, sometimes not even the performer's um, purview. It's the sound designer and the right. orchestrator and the uh, mm -hmm. and the and the, and music the director composer and the composer if they are badly yeah. set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yes. Very, very good point. Insofar as it's possible, I want to hear the words. And after that, you know, then you, you read them dramatically, you give them point, you, you make them part of the dramatic experience. But first of all, they must be legible in the ear. Terry, you want to, you want to take us to the next? Well, this one is from, I see on the page, the name looks to me like Peter Kuhn's. K-U-N-C-E, and if Peter, if I mispronounced your name, forgive me. Go get him, Alex. How does a critic handle a mishap during a production, either on their part, illness, distraction, or the production's part, tech failure, actor error? Have you ever seen the same production twice before reviewing it? Well, let me go first, because I, I actually brought an example to the studio with me of how do you handle a mishap during a production. Back in 2011, I was down in Sarasota at Aslo Repertory Theater, favorite company of mine. They were doing Reginald Rose's 12 Angry Men, and something happened during the opening night performance I saw that under other circumstances, I might not have bothered to mention at all, but not this time. Instead, I devoted the entire last paragraph of my review to it, and this is what I wrote. I don't want to end this review without paying tribute to Douglas Jones's amazing Sangfroid. At the opening night performance, a member of the audience seated in the back of the theater became ill right at the top of juror number 10's big speech and had to be carried out to a waiting ambulance. Not only did Mr. Jones carry on without so much as blinking an eye, but his control was so absolute that he somehow managed to prevent the incident from breaking the dramatic tension that had been built up so painstakingly throughout the preceding hour. That's acting. Now, this connects up with one of my 15 commandments of a reviewer, which is a handout that I give to students whenever I teach a class or workshop in performance criticism. And that commandment goes, always remember that a performance is a news event. Try to make your readers feel they were there. If the audience loved it and you didn't, say so nicely. If somebody on stage drops dead midway through the first act, don't forget to call the news desk. <laughs> Well, I, I have been to uh, many performances where ha there have been technical mishaps, and uh, if I had to review them, usually I do not mention it, because I don't think that's relevant, uh, these things. I mean, unless it was just really, really egregious. If it's like a missed entrance or beard falling, I mean, I don't, no, I don't mention Especially it. Since or, we're seeing previews. Yeah, I, I don't feel like that's... When I saw uh, Carousel, actually, there were two interruptions like, at very, very dramatic points, too, uh, due to medical emergencies in the house. Uh, and, I mean, I wasn't writing about the show, but I would not have mentioned them if I had been. Uh, I would say that, that you know, that it, it depends on the degree to which technical aspects of the show are central to the production. Mm. If I'm seeing something, a big machine on Broadway, if I'm watching King Kong and his eyes, you know, are right. you know, not closing when they're so, or, you know, or the mouth falls off or whatever, you know, I mean, in a big, when they're spending millions of dollars to wow you with the technical aspects of the show, I think they're fair game. I think though, you know, I've seen performances where, I actually did review a performance of On the Town where there were so many so many dancers falling that it was like you thought they were like, you know, it was like a, done on a skating pond. And I did mention it because by the sixth or so, I can't remember how many it happened to, it was time. It was time to say something yeah. because, you know, that's just under-rehearsed. 
You know, it shouldn't this, be shown to a, a critic until it's really completely ready. In this case, the, the excerpt from the review that I read, I mentioned it as a way of paying tribute to the actor in question. Yes, of course. And of I thought, course. I, you know, because that was he, very graceful. He had always been really, he was terrific in that show. And far better to say, here's the proof of how terrific he was than to say he was terrific. Have you ever, have you guys ever gone back to a show for a second? Have you ever asked for a second viewing of a show to, before you reviewed I, it? I, Oh, before I reviewed it, no. But I uh, once. You have time. No. Yeah, I, it's it's almost. But don't you think it's almost cheating in a way? Yeah. Yes. I, I don't mean you know it's not cheating. You can do you right. can go eighteen times if you want, I suppose. But I mean, you're supposed to see something and react the way somebody who's got a ticket and isn't obsessed yeah. with the show is gonna. You know, yeah, react. I, I agree. I've gone back after the review ran. If it was mm. something I thought was remarkable, and it's a company that I feel that I can ask that question of something, I paid for a second ticket before because I just. But that's wanted, after you've done. Uh, yeah, the it's after I've written the review, but I just wanted to see it again. Yeah, no, before there's no. That's a luxury that we don't have. The clock is running against yeah. us, and it just doesn't work very well. And also, it feels. I mean, I personally. I mean, especially now, but I don't have the means to buy. It feels like wrong to ask for another comp ticket and. Paying for that don't have the means, you know. So, I mean, this stuff really adds up, as listeners know. Yeah, and on Broadway, I mean, you're asking some, with some shows in particular, yeah. you're asking a lot if you ask right. for another ticket. But it sure is interesting when you can. I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this on this show or not, but I saw my the preview of the last Broadway revival, Present Laughter. And then I also saw, I think, the last performance, the one that was videotaped, because the Wall Street Journal was doing a, 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 an onstage thing afterwards. And so I, I, I came back and saw the show again. And it was just fascinating to see how, how it had evolved, how much loose, looser they were. They were having fun, not in the dangerous way. Where <laughs> Sometimes when you say an actor's having fun, that is not a compliment. Uh, but they were having a grand time, mm. and uh, I'm glad I got to see that. Mm. And I, I also love being able to go to regional productions of new plays that I saw, especially if I felt equivocal about them. Mm. Mm. Uh, I really felt equivocal about, oh, hell, um, the play about the bright school kids, the British school kids. Oh, uh, History, uh, History, History Boys. History yeah. Boys. I had very mixed feelings about that play when I saw the original cast, which came to New York. And then I saw the, the play remounted uh, with a completely different production, different cast in Chicago, done by Timeline Theater. And that time, the play landed, and I realized how good it was. Well, I had not felt that when I saw it. On and that's a very different situation yeah. than, yeah, than going back and seeing something and having a completely different right. yeah. um well okay uh, excellent now we're going on to another letter from overseas this time from a berlin listener named frederick Dole. i can't believe we have all these overseas listeners this is so cool yes it is the American system and the critical and academic discourses about musicals seem to be focused on New York. Your musicals have to reach Broadway, or at least off-Broadway, to have a chance for long-lasting critical and commercial impact and afterlife in regional theatre and global theatre. It can even be a major flop there, but it has to have reached New York. But is that really true? Or is there something like an indie musical scene in the US which generates valuable and lasting works that have more than local impact? And if there is such a scene, how does one access it? And how can one get an overview of what matters? Mm, boy, wow. that's, that, you know, there is an indie musical scene, but it doesn't work unless the show gets to New York. I've reviewed 
four or five over these last 15 years, four or five really good musicals that I just happened to be in town, you know, when I was doing one of my spins or I had some reason I'd, I'd been told this was good. And, uh, and I wrote about them and said, this show ought to go to New York. And in two cases, they did. Uh, one was Nobody Loves You, and the other was Hands on a Hard Body. Mm. Um, and it's absolutely true. A show that, a musical that does not make it to New York is probably not going to have a revival life unless there's something very unusual about it. Very small cast, uh, written yeah, for amateurs, you know, I mean, those specialty things. And, and it's not a quality judgment. No, it is it's not. Just, uh, it's just a fact, the very cold fact that in terms of licensing and exposure for a show to have that kind of life, yes, I would say it needs a New York production. What That's, I would like to see happen over in New York is more musicals whose and and destination is off Broadway, which is where they belong. I mean, there are uh, Broadway houses are best suited for certain kinds of musicals, and there are also Hands on a Hard Body is a wonderful show that should never have gone to Broadway. It was too small for Broadway. Well, that's the and that's the other problem, you know. The, uh, the and I've had this problem as you know, having spent a lot of time in D.C. reviewing shows and hoping that they would have a life beyond D.C. A mm. lot of original musicals and plays, and the problem is that there is a very it is very hard to find a middle ground. What Mr. Dole is asking about is, you know, is there a circuit that can exist beyond New York? Can it go? Can a can a musical or a play go without uh, uh, circling through New York? Can it go from Chicago to L.A. to Dallas to Seattle to Miami to Baltimore and not have a New York exposure for it to be considered something of industry-wide value or of, of, of impact? And the answer is unfortunately no. It's Whereas a, a small play can. Whereas a small play can, we know from Lauren Gunderson, for yeah. example, as mm -hmm. a tremendously produced playwright everywhere and had very little presence in New York, is mm -hmm. unfortunately. I mean, maybe more so, you know, high, let's just say not a high visibility presence right. in yes. New York. So, so the, 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 the fact is that I think that this is a, in a way, it goes back to our original conversation about the insecurity in this country, uh, in the arts, mm -hmm. and this belief that there are people who know how to uh, be arbiters of this in one city over all the others. And the fact is that that's not the case. It's an unfortunate aspect of how we create and and sustain this art form. I, I, I think a Be More Chill, I mean, I know, Peter, you don't care for it, but I think it's a good example because Be More Chill. Be More Chill. So Be More Chill had a production in New Jersey like four years ago, something like that. For a month, I didn't really go anywhere, but they did record it, and you know it's become part of the show's legend now that the cast album suddenly took out, took off, created this. There was this huge like grassroots fandom that aggregated around it, and led eventually to a North Broadway run and a Broadway run. Now, would the show have had any kind of commercial life in terms of licensing? It had just been picked up for licensing before the Off Broadway run, so maybe it would have had an you know, some kind of, of life. But I think the Off-Broadway and Broadway production really are the ones that are going to make the difference in terms of yeah. the commercial prospects of the show. Well, the miscalculation with Be More Chill is that the, the Off-Broadway run was closed-end. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. 
I can say this in retrospect because it's all already happened, and I thought the show might hit on Broadway. But in retrospect, it's quite clear that what they should have done was bring it into a house in New York where they could run it with an open-ended production. Because given the amount of publicity, uh, they could have run that show for a long time in a small house. I've got to say, but it could be running for decades at New World stages. Yeah, exactly like, right. New yeah. World, maybe it will. New World maybe stages. it will. Yeah. And that's something very New interesting. World Stages, for people who don't know, right, is a, an off-Broadway but midtown complex of theaters where 400, 500 seats, yeah. where, where things like Avenue Q have gone after Broadway. Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys, and they've done very of, well. Yeah. That's a very significant development yes. for the ecology of, of mm -hmm. New York theater is to have this this mid-ground where certain kinds of shows... I mean, Commercial Avenue, Avenue Q was a hit on Broadway, no question about it. But it extended its its life far longer than the original run mm -hmm. uh, at New World Stages, so I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Peter, you were you were right on the nose just a couple of minutes ago. I mean, the whole idea that New York is defining what is serious theater in America is ridiculous. Uh, it just isn't. I, I'm not altogether sure that the best theater in America is in New York. There's certainly the Chicago theater scene, to take the one obvious example, is at the very least of identical quality and size to theater in New York. It might be better. Uh, but who knows that? People in Chicago. Uh, this is not right. I don't know what we do about it. I mean, I do what I can about it by writing about these shows in the Wall Street Journal. But my dream, and I'm afraid that it is only a dream so far, is to establish at least one other city in the United States as a destination city for theater. Hmm. Yes. And, and Washington could also be one. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. <laughs> this is taking so much time. This is great. But um, we're going to do one last. And uh, this is uh, Alex is going to read a question by Alex. Not not you, right? I assume someone else. No. You've been not slipping you. stuff into the mailbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a question about standing ovations. Ugh. <laughs> Should you make that decision entirely independently or take at least some cues from others? If you remain seated when everyone else is on their feet, it feels like you're sending a more negative message than perhaps you meant to, in the same way that standing up when no one else is might feel more demonstrative than you wanted. And by the way, do critics get to participate in standing ovations or do you have to remain deadpan? Well, by God, I do if I feel like it. I'll stand right up if I think it, it's deserved. Why not? Mm. I don't care I what people think. I, I do a literally half-assed thing. The where I, No, I do that thing where I sit on, you know when the, the, the seat slams back up? I, I sit on the edge of it. All right. So it's kind of like a, I'm sitting high up because I, I do want to see what's happening on stage and I can't see if I'm sitting down. So I feel like by doing a very wimpy clap and sitting on the edge of the seat, I'm half, I, I, I just want to see what's happening on stage basically. And I can't see it if, if everybody around me is up. Um, I, I will just confess that I hate standing ovations. <laughs> they are 99% of the time unearned. They are that is indiscriminately true. doled out by audiences that are applauding themselves for the most part for having gotten off their backsides and paid a fortune to sit in a theater and to feel like they are have to communicate this to the Actors, part of it is out of, I think, real affection. I don't think it's necessarily disingenuous, but it's a terrible marker of the of of what 
the experience has been like. And I think that out of insecurity, most people get up. There's a difference between everyone rising in a kind of stunned, thrilled, exhilarated moment mm -hmm. of exuberance yeah. and people who are just slowly getting up and their back hurts and they get up because they look around and everyone else is already standing and they feel so bad about being the person who's sitting uh, that it that it becomes this phony audience response. No, so I, I, I agree. don't like it. I try not to participate in it. And just as Terry says, though, I couldn't care less if people think it's because Wait, so I but, don't like the thing or if I, you know, I'm just being. But, so, but what do you do? Do you just sit? Or I you try just... to sit for as long as I can. If it's something, if I do want to see because I'm worried that something will happen on the stage. Well, that's why the I kind of So I will get sort up. of sit on the armrest too yeah. and look, but I try not to. And it's not about rewarding or not rewarding the cast. It's, it's about not becoming part of a herd that I don't believe is really being honest with its feelings. Was mm -hmm. there ever a time when standing ovations were real? You make me wonder. Well. That's a. I, you I know, no, I, when I, I was a kid no going to Broadway, there was no such thing as standing ovations. Really? There were no really? standing ovations when I was a kid going to Broadway. Never. No one stood. This is a, this is a, I don't know when, you know, it's, it's sort of the same. Uh, I feel like it's generated at the same time when theaters started making people stand for 10 blocks to get into the theater. We used to, in the old days, we used to swarm the box office, you know, used to like, just sort of like an undulating swarm going towards the opening doors, you know, and uh, now it's like this, this, this manufactured, you know, look that producers want to create of, you know, the, the demand for this is so huge that the lines stretch down blocks and blocks. It's that same, there's a mentality that there has been fostered. I don't even know anymore if, so, if every night there's someone who starts a standing ovation. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if there are actually people planted it's, in audiences to start the standing ovations. Well, I'm not a plant, but I've started a couple of them. I mean, <laughs> you I just, have? Yeah, there Which are ones? There, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember a specific one, but I know that there have been moments when I just thought, God damn it, I'm standing up because this was... God damned good. And that's perfect. Now, listen, yeah. that's perfectly reasonable. That should not provoke everyone around you to feel they've got to stand up, too. Right. Good point. And that's the problem. People don't make their own decisions because they don't feel comfortable. They haven't gone enough to feel like. And there are, of course, other oh, people who will stand for everything because they're just that excited. As, and, as, but that's and our fine. correspondent is hitting Those are at all this fine. Too. But, yeah. but, you know, if 1,500 people have not had the experience in most shows I've seen. Uh, to, to want to all stand up. All right, I am getting overworked here. Anyway, <laughs> that is a very nice cross-section of the kinds of letters we get at Three on the Aisle. So let us end this section of the broadcast with a reminder. Write to us at threeontheisle at gmail.com. Be sure to spell out three, and we will happily consider using your letter on a future podcast. And now let's wrap things up with our usual round-the-horn discussion of shows we've seen since our last podcast, some of which we liked and some of which we didn't. Peter, let's start with you. Well, I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'll start with uh, A Strange Loop, which is the musical at Playwrights Horizons by Michael R. Jackson. He's 25 or 26, I believe. Is he I that have young? no idea. Under 30. Uh, he's a, a young black and gay composer who writes a musical about a young black and gay composer. Who writes a musical about, about a young, young black <laughs> and gay composer <laughs> right. who writes a musical. Stuck yeah. on the Mobius yeah. strip. Yeah, yes. So we're on the loop already. It's, it's performed. Uh, it's, it's kind of meta. It's very clever. The, it's a true... A show tune score, 
which I actually really appreciated. It you honors mean eleven the form. o'clock numbers and all. Oh yeah, everything. It's got it's, everything. It's got it. It's you know like everything. It could lose fifteen minutes, but it's got so much cleverness and so much wit, and it's got so much life. And there are uh, wonderful parts for an ensemble of African American actors who sing and and perform their guts out in something that is truly memorable and fun. And uh, I just I just hope that Michael R. Jackson writes 10 more musicals. I think he will. I haven't seen I, it yet. I long to. I've been missing shows that I wanted to see because of Mrs. T. And I'm going to try to catch up with some of them this summer. One thing I did get to see uh, up in Lenox at uh, Shakespeare and Company, um, it, we were talking about the Waverly Gallery. I was a moment ago. And uh, I was... I so admire Kenneth Lonergan, and I was so struck by the Broadway production that when Shakespeare and Company announced that they were going to revive the play themselves, I went up to see it. It was done, unlike the Broadway production, on a very small scale, a house that held, I I don't know, something like 200, something like that. Um, Most of the seats were within four to five feet of the stage. Very simple decor. Uh, A true ensemble cast made of people... Uh, who have appeared at Shakespeare and Company for years, led by Annette Miller, who is an octogenarian actress who has been doing what she calls old lady parts. She was in 4,000 Miles a couple of seasons ago. And I must tell you, this revival was as good as the Broadway revival, and in certain ways better, because one problem I had with the Broadway revival was that I thought it was over-designed and that that slowed the show down. As I mentioned, as I confessed earlier in the podcast, uh, I had never seen Waverly before that production. And now that I've seen it done small, I realize, and this became part of the point of my review in the Wall Street Journal, is that that show is written for a small house. It Mm. was conceived for off-Broadway, for an intimate theater. It gains enormously in in small scale and simplicity of presentation. And although the Broadway cast really had an ensemble feel to it, a tribute, I think, in part to Lila Neugebauer's direction, uh, Tina Packer, who is the founder of Shakespeare and Company, who directed this production, that was a real, true ensemble, no fooling ensemble. And I got to tell you, I, there was a whole lot of crying in the house mm. at the end of that show. It's a beautiful and a show. And part of it came from the fact that we were all together in that small mm. space experiencing this immensely powerful play. Mm. So it's, uh, it's still running. Go see it. It's a, it's a beauty. Mm. Okay. And my pick was actually was a one-off. It was a special reading. It was not even a... I mean, it was a reading of a play. Uh, it was uh, during the Pride celebrations uh, here in New York. The Rattlestick Theater organized a series of readings called Pride Plays. And it was a mix of new works and older ones. Uh, and there was one uh, that I had never seen. Uh, it's kind of a classic, a classic of lesbian theater. Look for my article about that very soon. If not, really? it could, could also, yes, okay, could actually be out when this comes out. Anyway, cool. um, anyway, so I finally saw a reading. They did a reading of a play called Last Summer at Bluefish Cove, which is a play by Jane Chambers from 1980, hmm. which is, I would argue, just as good, if not better, than Terrence McNally's Love, Valor, Compassion. It's a very similar mm. story, mm. and it's older than that play. Mm. Uh, it's about a group of lesbians who meet every year at beach resort called Bluefish Cove. Mm-hmm. It's always, in one year, a straight woman, for 
anyway, mistakenly rents one of the cottages. So she's thrown in, in there. She falls in love with one of the regulars who is dying of cancer. True. It's a great lesbian tragedy. Now, the original mm. version, it never played Broadway. It's, it, it's a total melodrama. It's great. Mm. Um, I've never seen it. And the reputation it has is that it's completely, it's just melodramatic. And it's actually incredibly funny. It's, it's really wonderful. Is and it a guilty pleasure? It is not a guilty pleasure. Okay. I thought it would be. I, w- I went fully prepared to, have a, to snicker at the campiness of it all. And it actually was really touching. I smell now, Broadway here. Well, 1980, but it sh- it should be. You're going to write mean, about it. I-, I mentioned it in in my piece. Great. Um, but what's interesting is the original cast uh, was the breakthrough role for a little someone you may have heard called Jean Smart, ah. who played the main part of the one who's dying of cancer, who's now its name I can't remember in the play, and the woman Designing who was reading. Women. Yes, and when they did the show, the play in L.A. Uh, a casting agent saw her in the play and cast her in Designing Women. There you go. So Sorry, that's how Jean Smart's career kicker. started. I'll be damned. Uh, anyway, the woman playing that part in that reading was a woman named Lori Prince, who was wonderful. And I, I don't think no relation to Harold Prince, the only Prince I know. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, she was the princess of Off-Broadway. Uh, it was really quite a revelation to me because it's been the butt of so many jokes, that show. And it was was kind of great. I think we need to see some older lesbian plays. Or any. Yes, or, or any. <laughs> any. I want to see The Children's Hour. I've said that many times. I've, mm. I've said it too. Me that, too. That is at the, now at the top of my list of important American plays deserving of first It has revival. never been revived on Broadway or anywhere in New York that I know of. Undervalued. And I looked... Yeah. I looked uh, on M- IBDB and on the uh, Lucille Lortel off-Broadway database, and it has not been revu- uh, revived, well, which hear, is crazy. You heard it here cast first. too large. Somebody. I know. It's uh, such a start. I, I know the company that should do it. It's Aslo Repertory in, in, in uh, uh, Sarasota because they are connected with a conservatory and thus are able to do large cast shows. Uh, with some of their apprentices in place. That's that's where I first saw Once in a Lifetime. It's where I first saw Life of Galileo. It's something that they do down there. So if you're listening down there, Aslo Rep, the Children's Hour, please. Yes. They did it in uh, London on the West End in uh, 2011 with uh, Kira Knightley and Elizabeth Moss. There you go. And there was a rumor it would come here, but it Anyway, it did not happen. There's but no excuse for that. Not we're ready. Anyway, we could go on. We could go on. And we um, do. We can always go on. And we will on. next time. <laughs> Until then, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Peter Marks. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer, with his irritatingly beautiful accent, <laughs> is Alex Barish. You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Both of them are spelled out. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. And keep those letters coming. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the Isle. <laughs>